0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe podcast,
1: where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue
0: while exploring race, politics, business and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones and I'm Charles D. Mitchell. DJ, how are you, bud? man? I'm doing great. Good. Happy to be here. Glad to have my good friend Craig Weiss on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us,
1: Welcome,
0: Mr. Weiss is uh, one of my good friends, and as I, you know, I admire him so much. He's an inspiration. Every time I see him, like I learn something. I'm not kidding you. I'm not. I'm not kidding you. Every time we we sit down, I'm like my eyes are this big by the time we leave because he's just told me the most incredible story about something that is just oftentimes just absolutely amazing. You know, and and look, I, I'm a lifelong. We talk about lifelong learning, right? And and Craig is just one of those people that I feel like every time I'm around him, I'm learning something. Oh, like, you gotta have friends like that. And I'm, I'm like moving that. things that's around, but but just little background. Um, don't blame him for this, but he's a <laughs> he's a recovering. Uh, I call myself a recovering corporate lawyer. He's a recovering patent attorney. Okay. Uh, turned entrepreneur that grew the hell out of a, a company that was just one of the hottest companies around. Uh, I'll let you talk about Enjoy a little later. And then um, uh, Post Enjoy has been doing a lot of things relative to, um, I guess, serial entrepreneurship, uh, uh, venture capital investing, uh, early stage companies, and just uh, all around good husband, father, um, community guy, does good, wants to help people. What are Craig's
1: shortcomings?
2: <laughs> you don't have enough time on today's uh,
0: program. Uh,
2: uh,
1: uh, uh,
0: uh, he likes old movies. How about that? Okay. <laughs> That's fair enough, man. That's fair enough. Uh, That's his vice. Uh, but Craig, uh, so look, give the audience a little bit of background, like your your family dynamics, you know, where you grew up, <laughs> and then just like early part of life, and then we'll jump in from there.
2: I had a very uh, non-traditional upbringing. Um, so my, my mom gave birth to children in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and she was a federal judge for 25 years. Probably the only female federal judge in the country with seven kids. Um, and so I grew up in this really interesting house where uh, my mom was this, you know, like esteemed judge uh, she was an immigration judge. So it was one of my favorite jokes in high school. I would say to my friends, I would say, you mouth off at the dinner table. You could get sent to your room. I could be deported. <laughs> um, and so uh, and then my you know, the first two kids were the girls and the next five are the boys. And so my two oldest sisters, you know, my sister Gail has uh, was the first person in the hundred and fifty year history of her college, to triple major uh, English philosophy, psychology, and then she got a PhD from Yale and she's a professor at George Washington university. And my sister, Felicia had a PhD in clinical psychology. So I've now learned in my life that I had these three very powerful female role models that, you know, I looked up to my mom and my two older sisters. And I think it really shaped the way I looked at the world Mm -hmm. that, you know, to me, it was like, well, of course women are like superstars. I mean, I, I was living with three of them. So, um i I never so i don't know it's interesting all of the boys in the family ended up marrying these like strong powerful women that like were really you know like leaders and interesting and professionals and and i and so and i wife's a rabbi yeah my wife's a rabbi so i did the same um so i don't think it's a coincidence um and so um but then you know i was a patent attorney for for a decade of my career uh, to be a patent attorney, you have to have a bachelor's of science degree. Um, I was a philosophy major in college, so I didn't have a single credit towards a bachelor's of science degree. So uh, after after law school, I had to go back to school to take the equivalent of a bachelor's of science in biology and chemistry to qualify to become Is that a patent right? attorney. Yeah. After law school. After law school. Um, I went to Scottsdale Community College and Grand Canyon University wow. uh, to take those classes. And I actually, it was a lot of fun. I was like, I don't know. I, I started to think about biology kind of like, like, it was like learning how to become a mechanic for your car. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, we all have these bodies. It's kind of neat to learn how they work. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was kind of fun. And then, and then my life, uh, the big turning point in my life happened in, uh, 2008. That's where kind of the trajectory of my whole life changed. My, my father passed away and he was this, you know, beloved guy in our family and he had started his own intellectual property law firm and the four oldest sons of which I was the youngest were all IP attorneys and we'd all worked at the, at the family firm for, for our dad. And so, you know, for me, it was just, uh, you know, a, a very fear inducing moment. I, I had a 15 month old son and, you know, just found out there was some, you know, just some, you know, he was a late Walker and a late talker and okay. there were some, you know, developmental challenges and, uh, My dad was just one of those guys who was just like always there for you. And then all of a sudden, you know, he wasn't. And so I felt like I was on the tightrope and, you know, someone just, you know, yanked the safety net out from under me. And so... Fear is a great motivator. Uh I started reading every business book I could get my hands on and joining like CEO groups, thinking about the law firm as the business. How do we re- replace? Well, he was he was kind of irreplaceable, my dad, but he was generating so much of the new business revenue. And it wasn't clear to me that the the law firm was gonna make it. And so mm. uh so that was a, a stressful time. And then um
1: Now, what city are you in when all this is taking place? So
2: I'm really here in Scottsdale, uh, where we are now. In fact, the law firm is walking distance from where we're sitting right now in Old Town. And um, so, yeah, so then I – so that was the one big turning point was was, was sort of that shift. And then there was another turning point in my life, which was – I I lived. I've kind of lived all over. I I went to college in Philadelphia for four years. um, Where at University of Pennsylvania? Okay. And uh, it's kind of right in the center city. uh, Absolutely, which is a lot of fun. And I grew up here, and you know, my parents moved here when I was six months old, so I'm an almost native of Phoenix. And I think because I loved it here, I wanted to go back east and experience a little bit of a different Mm -hmm. culture. And um, and so, junior year of college abroad, I went to Jerusalem to Hebrew University where I met my wife who was also an American on um, junior abroad. And so we kind of met and fell in love. I was 20 years old. So I, 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 always joke with my friends. Uh, like I cheated. I met my wife when I was 20, like I didn't have to go through all of the hassles and, the, you know, all the tr- troubles that everyone else went through. And so, um, so we ended up living off and on for about four years in, in Israel. Um, just really loved it there, Loved the people and the culture and the experience. Um, And, you know, I think one of the reasons why Charles and I have always bonded is because I think we've always a little bit felt like outsiders. And so um, it's an unusual thing when you, when you live in the United States and you're, in my case, I was, I'm Jewish. So, you know, every holiday season, everything's Merry Christmas and, (laughs) you know, and, and so, so it's so bizarre, but when you live in Israel and all of a sudden for the first time in your life, you're in the majority and you've, your whole life, you've been a minority it's so surreal. It's the craziest thing. And everything about it was weird. Not just like that it's Hanukkah during, you know, December, not Christmas, but like, like, you know, everybody you see is like you. So what was really powerful for me is like, wow, like that, the garbage man, he's, he's Jewish too. And like that waiter is Jewish. And like, that hot chick with the machine guns, Jewish, like, you know, and you're just sort of, and I always joke. I, I, so there's a, there's, there were these two, two big influxes of immigrants into Israel in the early nineties when the Soviet union collapsed, about a million Russians uh, moved to Israel. And then um, uh, they, they also had uh, a sizable Jewish population in Ethiopia that was under danger from uh, this, this sort of, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of these countries, there's like the the, the government collapses and then these are sort of rebel forces come in and there's all these terrible, you know, genocides. And so the, the government of Israel swooped in and, and basically rescued this huge population of Jews from Ethiopia. So I always joke that, you know, I, I, I see more black people in Jerusalem than I do in Scottsdale. Um, and so... But, but again, they're, they're Jews like me. And so, like, it's this crazy dynamic that I'm in this place of being the ma- majority, which is, you know, a neat feeling as someone who, who's always felt a little bit like an outsider. So, but I lived there for four years. I met this really interesting guy one day who had taken three companies from founding to IPO when he was in his 20s. And so kind of a serious dude. And he was he'd grown up in Philadelphia. His parents had moved to Israel when he was 10. So he spoke English like us. But culturally was a little more Israeli than he was American. And we struck up this friendship and he was the first person to kind of suggest that maybe I shouldn't be practicing law and I should become an entrepreneur. And he kind of planted that seed. And, and so, uh, and then when my dad died and, and, and he was kind of giving me that nudge, um, that, that was really what set me down that path.
1: So question for you, um, pen, Like kind of a selfish question here. Remember Cliff? Hmm? So Cliff King is a good friend of mine, and um, he's uh, director of sports marketing at Brand Jordan. And he has a son who's a hell of an Uh, athlete—football, basketball—and he's being recruited by Penn, Hmm. which not quite the hotbed of sport. Hmm. But we we know what else that brings, right? Sure. Going to Penn. Um, I'm going to visit there in a couple of weeks. Are you? So this could be taking Jason. He him. went for his for his visit. They've been looking at him for two years. He finally went for a visit. He's come back. I'm doing everything I can to convince him, hey, to walk on to Oregon or to walk <clears throat> on. Take advantage of that Penn opportunity. What was your experience like at Penn? How did it How did it change you? How did it
2: cement certain things about you? So look, I call, you know, the cliche like college is the best four years of your life. Like it really was for me. That's awesome. Um, I loved Penn and it was, when I went, it was considered the social Ivy and, and yeah. it really was Yeah. like, and I remember walking around and I'm like, I never met like cool nerds before. Like, <laughs> you know, but
1: there are part of that's Philly too, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and
2: like, they were like partying and I yeah. was like. The people who were the smart kids when I was growing up, like they didn't party. They didn't go like they were the ones staying home studying on Friday night. So I was just sort of blown away by that. Like, you know, so they were like fun and casual and cool. Um, And I like I think the only people who don't like Philly are the New Yorkers. The New Yorkers, <laughs> they look down on Philly so like I've it's just it, like it not so a true. real city. <laughs> but for everybody so else, it's a cool
1: Philly's city. It's cool, man. You gotta find your, your niche the, in, yeah, in Philly, I like you say, figure yeah. it out figure it out. But once you do it, it's a pretty cool city.
2: It's a great place. Yeah. So, you know, and one of the things obviously that Penn has that that not any other kind of Ivy has is this this Morton, <clears throat> right? This unbelievable that's right. undergraduate business school that has this incredible brand that, you know, you get to have with you for the rest of your life. So, um, and look, the sports when I was there were great. So all four years I was there, we went to the NCAA tournament in basketball because the winner of the Ivy league gets an automatic bid. Got it. So, okay. so all four years we went and it was super fun. And then, and our football team was awesome and went undefeated my senior year. Does um, that right? Yeah. Wow. So, we had great sports at Penn. We had um, So we had two guys that played when I was there who both made it into the NBA. So oh, wow. uh, Matt Maloney, yeah. who ended yeah. up being, being yeah. a starter for Houston. Yeah. They, like and then, and then his teammate, Jerome Allen, who made it onto the Pacers and a couple of other teams. And the irony was Jerome Allen was a way better one-on-one player than Matt Maloney. But Maloney had a great outside shot. Sure. And so in the NBA, if you're not going to be the first option... You need to have a great outside shot. And so, um, but anyhow, so we had a, we had a blast. So the sports is great. You get this amazing education. Ultimately it's the people though. Like I think college is all about your classmates Mm -hmm. and not as much about your professors. So I've got, you know, some friends that I'm still friends with today that I met in college that are just, you know, amazing people.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think, um, That's the thing I I try to kind of, Charles and I had a conversation earlier about that undergrad experience and what it means. And as you look back, a lot of it really is that social environment. You almost assume you're gonna get your education and figure that out, but that social piece, because you're still coming to an understanding of who you are.
2: I think you just hit the nail on the head. I just had this conversation a week ago, and I said, when I look back to college, I I don't rem- I almost don't remember a single thing that I learned in the classroom, in well, I college. Have to, right? Have to somewhat agree, but with you. Yeah. What, what I learned was hundred percent agree. Yeah. But I, what I learned was who I am. Who you are? Because you don't know for sure who you are when you show yeah. up when you're 18 years old. But then you meet people who don't know you, and then you start to have this interesting conversation. Well, what, what's DJ going to think of me? Well, what do I want him to think about me? What, when he walks away, what do I want him to think about is this guy, Craig, and that ends up becoming who you are, right? It's absolutely right. You know, and then you meet people, this happened to me a lot too. I meet people, I'm like, that was really cool. I like how he said that, or I like how he did, I'm going to try to do that. And then the opposite, right? God, that was kind of, that didn't make me feel good. I think that was kind of a dick thing that this guy said, maybe I should, you know, not do that, you know? And so.
1: Man, that's beautiful.
0: I think college, you know, when I think back on that time, I think it really solidifies, uh, at least for me, you know, the kind of people that you want to surround yourself mm-hmm. with in terms of the, your, your friend group uh, and, and folks that are um, aspiring to do, you know, doesn't matter what career or what field, but just good things in life, right, to, to do to do good when you're out in the world. Um, and I think when you're in your career and you're out into the, into the world that we're all in now, you see the people who you want to become like, to aspire to like, these are the things I can become. And these are the things that I can achieve uh, because I've got a peer network or people that I'm around that who really show you that just about anything's
1: possible, right? I may call on you to have a conversation with him if that's if um, that's I, okay. I, of course, I'm serious 100% about that. Man.
2: Happy to do it. I, I, I it, think it, it, you it might have some it, great it might be yeah.
0: too. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm taking Jaden. Well, I'd weeks. love to talk
2: to Jaden too. Yeah. I, I mean, I had a wonderful time, and um, and look, my dream was to go to Harvard. I didn't yeah. get in. I applied early. They deferred me to the regular pool. I was waitlisted. My heart was broken. I was, but I I think it was ended up being for the best. It always, it always works out. I think. Yeah. And the funny
0: thing I found, just as we're looking at all these Ivy League schools right now the one thing i have found that a lot of them do not have undergraduate uh, degree programs in business that's right um and she really wants Absolutely to focus on them, right. they do not have
2: those so um, there was a running joke when I was there at Penn, which the running joke was, was, was that Wharton was the number one undergraduate business program in the country. It's also the only undergraduate business program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, obviously, like lots of famous people went there and, you know, and like, you know, uh, and got their business degrees from Wharton, including just an undergrad yeah. and, and not, you know, the MBA. So if she's interested in business or if your friend's son is interested... Years. I mean you you know, it's a, it's just a that pedigree. It's um you know it's a it's a name brand that that that's like universal. Curious. Yeah. And he sure. also
1: had a little bit of a stinger. He early applied to Stanford and didn't get accepted. Like you said, oh, he did, early, early decision. He did yeah. an early decision. Yeah. Yeah, he, he tried to early application. Yeah. Didn't quite work through. Yeah. So so I'll be, okay, you're a you know, attorney and you know, carrying on uh dad's legacy, et cetera, <laughs> right? There's that. So probably be some pressure there too. Um, I would imagine, maybe self inflicted, maybe not. So you decide to make this transition. What what was that like?
2: Well, so it's funny. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and Charles and I've been talking about it. And I, I I finally came to this conclusion. What little kid grows up and says they want to be a patent attorney? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it has something to do with the fact that my father was a patent attorney for 50 years and had his own patent firm. Maybe that has something to do with it. Because the truth of the matter is I now realize like that's not what I should have done. But it just, you know, there's a there's a famous sort of view that um it's actually uh it's from it's from um Uh, let's see, Daniel Kahneman, the guy who won the Nobel Prize in economics, but he's actually a psychologist. There's a great book about him called The Undoing Project, which is uh, Michael Lewis, the guy who did the big short Mm -hmm. and Moneyball, right? So this book's called The Undoing Project. And it's about these two um, Israeli psychologists who, crazily enough, won the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, so so this guy, Daniel Kahneman, has this view that what's really interesting about people is that, some of the most important decisions in their life are ones they don't actually give a lot of thought to like, what's your career? Like who are you going to marry? Well, who you're going to marry is maybe who sat next to you in the cafeteria, Mm -hmm. you know, freshman year of college, like, or who sat next to you on the bus or whatever. Right. Like some of those really big decisions were really more accidental. Mm -hmm. And, and his theory is that you actually learn more about people from some of the small decisions that they make Mm -hmm. You know, like, okay, maybe they're a doctor because their parents are doctors, but what kind of a doctor do they become, you yeah, know, yeah. and, and, and that kind of thing. And so for me, you know, I just kind of became a patent attorney cause I, you know, just sort of felt like that was the path of least resistance. And, and, um, but I, um, so I have a brother, one of my brothers, who's also a patent attorney, uh, he'd gone to China for a client of our firms and in like '05, and and saw like a crude version of an electronic cigar at a trade show, and thought, well, this would make a great product if ever they could somehow get it down to the size of a cigarette. And so he founded this company called Enjoy, Adventure a venture of our law firms in late 06. So so technically, I became this founding shareholder, but I, I really didn't have anything to do with the company. I'm you know still a patent attorney, and my brother brought in some friends of his to run the company, and you know they're starting to do well, and the company's starting to take off. <laughs> And uh, about a, a year almost to the day after my father passed away, the FDA directs U.S. Customs to see shipments of Android's product at the border as an unapproved drug delivery device. So... It was, I always say, you don't want to be dealing with the FDA. It's like, it's like there's, it's like one of those three letter acronyms like IRS or FBI. Like you just don't <laughs> they want show up at your door. Yeah. It's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And of, of all the government agencies, they might be the scariest, you know? And so no one wants you to have anything to do with you if you've got some involvement with the FDA. And so it was just kind of a big mess. And, um, And then, you know, so my dad dies, the company that we thought was going to be kind of the solution to all of our financial problems is now, you know, really up in the air. And then uh, my, my friend from Israel, this guy named Ellie sort of goes from friend to mentor and he sort of suggests, you know, well, you know, this, this electronic cigarette thing seems to be a big deal. Your family founded one of these companies, like, how come you're not more involved in this? And I start to kind of get up to speed and one thing leads to another and I end up, you know, kind of leaving behind the practice of law to go run Enjoy, which I cannot sort of overstate how absurd this was, right? Like I was a lawyer providing legal services to clients. Enjoy is manufacturing, R&D, distribution, marketing, regulatory, like things I didn't know anything about. And so, um, I said to, when, when Ellie first suggested I take over the company, I'm like me, you know, like I I don't understand. And he's like, you know, you know, you're a smart guy, you'll figure it out, you know? But the reality was I called him every day for like two years. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think about this? And, and some of the conversations were like one minute long, you know, Hey, what do you think this is the story, whatever, what do you think I should do? You know? And quick boom, boom, boom. But it was like that for two years. And, um, and it was a crazy deal. We, uh, when the day I took over, we had eight employees uh, We're in litigation with the FDA and the controller said, we'll be out of cash in two weeks. <laughs> so, so now the funny thing about it is I didn't really feel like I was taking this huge risk because I was leaving the law firm, which was no longer on such great solid footing. And, you know, it's like, you know, that joke, right? If you, you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Like, I, I just didn't feel like I was taking a massive risk because they both seemed risky. I um, staying staying at the law firm seemed very risky. Leaving seemed very risky. So the 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 delta didn't seem that big. Um, and so I mean, also you could probably take it from a standpoint
0: too that you know you can always get a job somewhere, right? You know you're never going to be hungry
2: or so homely, right? One I, and I think that's the benefit of of being a lawyer. I didn't say that right? Right, right, because if you do have an education, then okay, yeah, you're you're employable. Mm-hmm. You're not going to you know. But, um, you know, but it's still, I don't know. It's interesting. There was some point in my life where I realized that was scary to me to work for somebody else, to be an employee, because then you're putting your fate into somebody else's hands. Oh yeah. And that doesn't, that just didn't feel great to me. And that, that ends up becoming a mantra of mine is that one of the things, like when I encourage people to be entrepreneurs, I say, listen, when you, when you work for yourself, you're in no danger of being fired. You know, you can go out of business that you can do for sure. Right. It doesn't mean you're going to for sure be successful, but you're not going to arbitrarily be fired by some boss who, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't agree with. And so, um, but yeah, so it is a crazy story the the, the short version of it is raised a couple of hundred million in private equity, got the company to a billion dollar valuation in three and a half years manufactured 80 million units of these products, distributed them in 130,000 retail locations, ran commercials during the Super Bowl in in Phoenix and a bunch of other markets, and billboards in Times Square and double-decker buses in London, and met with FDA four times and Health Canada twice and the MHRA in the UK twice and testified in front of the US Senate, uh, which will go down as one of the worst experiences in my entire life. Um, And so, but it was a (laughs) wild, crazy ride. um, And I learned a ton along the way, made certainly plenty of mistakes, uh, got a few things right. And um, and in February of 2014, I I you know did my Series D round of $74 million and a billion pre with Fidelity and Morgan Stanley and Bain Capital. And people are kind of slapping me on the back for creating a unicorn. And here in Arizona at the time, I think there were only five or $6 billion companies. And uh, within a month of, of that, uh, everything sort of changed, unfortunately for me for the worst. So the uh, it was the peak of the category for what were then called the cigalikes or the products that looked identical to a cigarette, which was our flagship product designed to appeal to the adult smoker and uh, products that looked nothing like a cigarette, like jewel for example, that mm-hmm. unfortunately for them had a lot of youth appeal became the dominant form factor in the industry. And so the, the investors saw we weren't on the same financial trajectory that we had been on when they made their investment and You know, if you're the CEO, the buck's off with you. So I was politely asked to go from CEO to executive chairman of the board, which I did for a year and and cycled off. So for me, it was a bummer because I had taken the company, you know, kind of from nothing to a billion, but had wanted to go public and take it to 20 billion and never got the chance to do that. So uh, so then I'm kind of in this weird situation where I'm unemployed. I've had this crazy experience, but okay, so now what? And, uh, you know, And
0: you know, I think back to that time, because you and I, we, we were talking a lot then, you know, when this whole thing was going down. And one of the things I always thought was that, you know, moving past that scenario, what I think the company missed from you was the energy you brought to the organization every day in terms of the story around Enjoy and the opportunity to do something different in the marketplace than all the competitors were doing at the time. Strategy aside, right? Being able to be a a charismatic, visionary leader in a new segment, quite frankly, you know, um, I think you had that nailed.
2: Well, I I talk about it a lot. I guest lecture at WP Carey here at ASU uh, the seniors taking entrepreneurship and then the MBA and exec MBA students. And I talk a lot about that. There's a great book uh, by Simon Sinek called Start with Why. He did a TED talk that was really popular. And it's this idea of, okay, so, you know, what, what do you do? That's like the basic question. You say, oh, well, you know, we, we sell electronic cigarettes. And the next question is, well, how, right? It's a little more complicated. Well, how do you do it? And, you you know, we could have said something really sophisticated, like, oh, well, you know, we've got this proprietary technology for matching the pharmacokinetic delivery of nicotine to the bloodstream of a combustion cigarette by, you know, matching the, uh, you know the the, the, the particle size of the nicotine to get it to, you know, to, to get across the blood brain barrier in the same amount of time that a cigarette does, uh, but without the toxicity that's created from combustion. Uh, but the real question is, why? Why are you doing what you do? And that's the really important question. And we we got to that answer quickly. And I think it's what separated us from the hundreds of competitors, which was our why was our mission is to obsolete cigarettes. And these cigarettes are killing half a million Americans a year, causing hundreds of billions of dollars of cost to our healthcare system. And at the end of the day, you know, when I started at Enjoy, tw- I think 21% of adults in the United States were smokers. And what was interesting for me was like, wait a second. They're addicted to nicotine, but nicotine's not a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Nicotine's an FDA-approved drug, right? It's the delivery system that's carcinogenic, it's burning you know things that that causes all of these cancers. So I thought, well wait a second, you know the World Health Organization said a billion people were going to die this century from smoking. And I just the light bulb went off for me. Well, if you could give those people the nicotine that they're already addicted to in a non-toxic delivery system, it's Got like it. the greatest public health opportunity of the century and those 1.3 billion people who are currently smoking are spending like a trillion dollars a year on their current tobacco habits. so it's a pretty big economic opportunity mm-hmm. too. So we really got our why. and We just said our mission is to obsolete cigarettes. And, you know, these tobacco companies, they're the only companies in the world that sell a product that when used is directed, kill half of their customers. Like, <laughs> like, and how are they allowed to do this? Because they pay their taxes? <laughs> like, it didn't make any sense to me. And I I remember I had this idea that, like, I used to talk about, like, I said, I want to live in a world where my kids grow up and they go, wait, dad, I don't understand. People used to light something on fire and then put it in their mouth. Didn't they burn their mouth? Like, I don't understand. Like, how did that work? You know? <laughs> and so, um, I actually, I met some amazing people along the way and including some, some, you know, kind of world famous celebrities. And so I, I had, I, one of the meetings that I'm most proud of, I think we talked about was yeah. I, I got back to back meetings with Kobe. Kobe? Yeah. yeah. Uh, on consecutive days. And, one of the things that I remember from those conversations that I loved, one of the first things he said to me was I was curious why he was interested in talking to me about enjoy. And the way he described smoking, he's like, it's just primitive. It's like barbaric. And I love that because I was like, he's right. It is primitive. It is barbaric. You know? I can see him saying that. Yeah. Hopefully. So anyhow, Uh, But so I think it's important to always know your why. And if you and one of the things I say to the kids at WP Carey is if you don't know your why, you might want to keep looking for something else Mm -hmm. because because it better not be to make money because, you know, that's not going to really get you up in the money.
0: I always say money is a byproduct of really good work, right? When you do really good things um, and you're passionate about it and you're the best at it. It's the derivative. It, it just comes from all of that effort and the, and the the things you put into it. You know, I, I really want to I, – I just looked up and like, wow, we only have 15 minutes. <laughs> the, the one thing, thing –
1: What? Just about it being barbaric and primitive. I, I was on the golf course last week uh, with the guy who I golf with, Bob, all the time. And we were in a cart together. And there was a guy <laughs> behind us. Hope to God he's not watching this. But he was from uh, – Outside of Detroit, he was with his buddy, they'd flown in for business. And they pulled out cigarette, I'm pulled out a cigarette. And my thought was, this guy really fucking smoking a cigarette. (laughs) Exactly. And we both, Bob and I both (laughs) did like this. It's like it feels ancient. ancient, right? To see somebody and he was dragging on him. I mean, he had to get through half a pack. Right. So you're right. I mean, this whole concept. It was, no, I gotta it tell was, you, I, I, so, sorry I've about that I've I've
0: not you. hired people because I saw them smoking before nah, they walked I, in the I building. Get it? I'm like, you, you still, still dragging on squares, man? It's like, oh uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, but and there's a connotation that goes along with it too, right? Lazy. <laughs> Probably the idea that smell, you're, you the, uh, the don't yeah. care about your health yeah, all. If you're doing it, that, it, it, it's it's not very intellectual, if you will, right? right? So because you you, you you say you know, if you were smart, you wouldn't be smoking in that cigarette, right? <laughs> right. So there's there, there's that all of that, and so for me as an employee, you're looking at that, you're going, oh, and the other thing is they take breaks all day long, so they can do what? Dragon right. squares side. Yeah. right? Yeah, you're not working.
1: So yeah, man, it's just. But I, I, think about that. I want to
0: make sure we get to this, though, because this is this is the thing that, you know, it's, Craig and I have shared a similar experience. Um, but he's taken this to a, another level in terms of just experientially. Um, and that is um, the, the the I don't I'm trying to figure out how the right, right way to frame this. I, I'll speak from from my experience. I, I had a uh, two years ago. I did a. Um, It was like two years ago. Maybe it was more than that. But I did a psilocybin therapy where I spent like six hours with this, this, um, guide, if you will, where I was under the influence of psilocybin, um, in a controlled way and, uh, blindfolded and had this euphoric, amazing experience. And, um, Have since sort of followed that movement Right There are a lot of books about it Michael Pollan's written about it A lot of podcasts Tim Ferriss has had Michael Pollan And others on To talk about it Um, And I know that You've had some experiences Um, Do you mind sharing that? No, please
2: I'm happy to So Yeah, I mean and look, your story that you told me was very inspiring to me. And um, in fact, I, I you may recall, but I, I wanted to go to the same person. And when I contacted her, I was like, what did you say to her? Because she's not taking new people anymore. Mm, yeah. And I, I just was holding you personally responsible for that. <laughs> um, but, but so no, I... Rightfully so. Yeah. So I, I like you, I, and I went down a little bit of this rabbit hole. I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, mm-hmm. which was a real eye opener for me. I had no idea that there was... This like 50, 60, 70 year history of FDA approved clinical trials into the efficacy of psychedelics. And, you know, if you look at mental health in this country or in the world, the last big breakthrough was like Prozac like 40 years ago. Mm. There hasn't really been any uh, other than like these SSRIs. Yeah, there's new ones, but they're all kind of the same thing and they don't really work that well and they cause all sorts of other challenges and so I started to read about all of this, and it was really fascinating to me. Um, and there's a series. So one of these one of these psychedelics uh, is, is already FDA approved, which is ketamine, which is basically a disassociative. When you take it, it's normally uh, anesthesiologists give it to you if you're going to have surgery or something. But um, but then these other ones, psilocybin that, that that Charles mentioned is in phase three clinical trials and MDMA, which is... Psilocybin, the, better known as... Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Yeah, magic mushrooms. And so so I started to learn, like, wait a second, these things are actually, like, have incredible track record of thera- thera- therapeutic benefit. And so, um, yeah, so I, 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 like Charles, I had um, uh, now two of these experiences where you have, um, like, they, they, so, so in the clinical trials that the FDA has approved, there's there's sort of a protocol that they follow. Like Charles mentioned, you you got the blindfold, so you don't have visual stimulation, and they put these headphones on, and you listen to music that doesn't have uh, words in it, so it's instrumental mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And and what I found that that to me was so powerful about it is. There are these three movies. It's a trilogy. It's the lowest grossing trilogy of all time. Uh, Before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight, uh, Ethan Hawke is the main star of this trilogy. And uh, he has this great line. I think it's in the first movie that has always made me think about the psychedelic experience, which is that he said, "Um, I've never been to a party that I wasn't at and I've never been on vacation where I wasn't there and this idea is we're with each other we're with ourselves every waking second right exactly. the only time you're taking a break from yourself is when you're asleep yeah. right and that's actually one of the interesting things about dreams right is that you're not really there you're there but you're not really there that's another conversation that's another conversation and so but but so what was so amazing about the experience is it's the only time in my waking life i wasn't with myself so mm-hmm. you have this experience where you or I keep saying you and I should start saying I and you know this was my experience but I I'm in this place where I I know I'm there but I'm also viewing myself as if I'm a third person and so I can now look at myself almost like objectively um, as if I'm the observer and then I start to see things and patterns and and it's the same thing it's five hours so for so you know, the, the, the funny thing about this is, I don't think the average human spends five minutes <laughs> thinking about themselves. Like, you know, like, wait, why do I do what I do? And how come I said that to that person? Or, you know, what was it about my upbringing that caught? Like, you know, you don't really have those conversations with yourself. And if you tried, if I said, well, go home tonight, put some headphones on. Well, in five minutes, you'd be, you know, you'd be thinking about, you know, whatever your television show you were watching last night. Like, hey, your mind races. It's hard to stay focused. But with these psychedelics, you get five hours of focus and clarity. Interesting. And whatever you kind of put your mind on, if you say, you know what, I'm going to think about my kid or I'm going to think about my spouse or I'm going to think about my friend. All of a sudden, for me, I, I found all of this clarity and insight that I never get during the rest of the year. And so it was super powerful and I walked out of that experience and I'm like this is part of my life forever like you know once twice a year I'm going to come back and do this forever and so um
1: So when you're observing yourself are you also developing our perspectives about yourself emerging? Yes,
2: yeah. Oh okay. And and what's amazing yeah. is I I am able to remember them with tremendous clarity.
1: Oh my God. So like,
2: here's an example. So I never really knew my grandparents. So three of my four grandparents died really before I was 10. And so I don't, I have like one very faint memory of each of them. And then the fourth grandparent died when I was maybe 18 or 19. I remember her a little bit better, but I didn't know them. Right. I was a kid. And so I'm, I'm in this experience and all four of my grandparents were immigrants, right? You know, Ellis Island, like the whole, the whole nine yards. And they were all from like, uh, two of them were from the Ukraine and, and one was from Lithuania and one was from uh, Poland. And so I'm sitting there and I think to myself, what kind of a person decides I'm going to get up, I'm going to leave it all behind all of my possessions, my family, my friends, my language, my culture, everything. And I'm going to move to a new country, a country where I don't really know anybody. I don't speak the language. I have no money. I have no profession. I have no experience. Like that's an incredible act of bravery, right? Like that's a pioneer. That's like somebody, I I wouldn't do that. That's a crazy thing to do. And I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't be here unless all four of them were that wow. kind of a person, yeah. mm-hmm. right? To take that kind so of, true. A, of, a, of a risk and a chance to do something that probably almost everyone in their community didn't do, right? They were like the one person who like, you know, left their family behind. And so I was just thinking like, what an interesting thing that I'm the, you know, the, the second generation. I'm the grandchild of these pioneers. That That's a heck of a thought though to have. Yeah. yeah,
1: isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So, you, and and if you were not on ketamine, or you may have never thought that way, right. right? Is
2: that right? Yeah, and I and I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling as I'm lying there, this um, like I'm like I'm getting to know my grandparents better, even though they're all dead. Like my relationship with them is improving, and <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, and I'm feeling like an insight that I have about them and their personality, and. Like And I'm thinking, God, I wish they were here so I could just thank them for their courage to to make that decision. Because obviously I've got a better life here in the United States than I would have had in any of those countries. <laughs> and so, um, so like that was one. And so things like that. And I, I start to think about everything from that different perspective that I don't usually get.
0: You know, another piece of that, too, like, you know, we, we the last time we got together for lunch and talked about the experience that you had from the standpoint of now you've got this, you have this real knowing around
2: an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk about that. So this is really wild. I went into this and they asked me, like, what are you hoping to get out of this experience? And I said, well, you know, I'd like to be a better husband. I'd like to be a better father. I'm starting this new business venture. You know, I'd love to get some insight on that. And then kind of as a throwaway, I say, well, and there's, I guess, one other thing is that, you know, I've, I've met people my whole life. We've all met people. If you ask them, do you believe in God and in an afterlife and heaven and eternal soul and all of that? You know, they're like 100 percent, like there's not a shred of doubt in their mind. They have absolute faith. I said, look, I'm jealous of those people. I wish I had that conviction. I said, I, I don't. It. And I said, and it's not because I believe in the Big Bang theory. What caused the Big Bang? Like, that's not a particularly satisfying explanation for me, but I'm an agnostic. I just don't know. And I, I don't really have a conviction. So my first experience for five hours, what I like experience, this last one is where I had this insight with my grandparents. But the first time, what I experienced for five hours is basically like God's blueprint for the universe. Why we're all here what the point of everything is. And, and basically, and I come away with now, basically I'm one of those people now that like has this faith that, that we're not just here this one time and that there's an eternal soul and all of that, which I really, that was not my expectation going in.
0: You said, you told me something. You had, you saw these, there's these six people. Oh yeah. And you, they were you and your siblings. Yes.
2: Right. Well, so this is what was really interesting about the music. So, for me, at least in my experience, I don't know how it is for other people. Um, the music narrates the experience. So it's it's telling you, but there's no words. So it's like telepathic telling me this is what this means. This is what that means. This is what you're seeing right now. And so I started to see kind of, you know, wispy, cloudy, you know, sort of golden light. And the music's like, those are souls. Oh, okay. You know, and then that's the soul of your father. That's the soul of your mom. That's the soul of your wife. Like, and, and the music's just telling me what I'm seeing. And, but it was, it was the part, and you kind of, I think, said it yourself. It was almost more of a knowing or a remembering, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't feel like what I was experiencing was this brand new idea as much as I was remembering this, this idea that I had forgotten. Uh,
0: That's a great way to put it, because I think for me it was similar in the fact that I think it just it just reinforced some just things about me as a human being and experientially and the the whole concept and idea of love and how important that was for me. Um, I think that was one of the things. And and then obviously people that are in your life. Right. Um, um, And and how important they are and and, and try to really sort of bring that into For me, it was like this this reality around just these truths um, that I can really sink into and go, you know what? Everything's going to be okay, right? You know, all these relationships, these things that I, you know, that you sometimes worry about, are they going to go, you know, know, being married and your kids, you know, having an understanding about what that's going to look like for you and how you oftentimes be worried way too much, Mm -hmm. but giving you this sort of peace that, you know what? Things are going to be okay.
1: So you guys have. I'm getting kind of nerdy about this now, but I'm heavily intrigued about this. Did it give either of you an insight into from a from a dream perspective? Now I'm talking about dreams that you actually do script your dreams, or are your dreams something that happened to you in your sleep? No, that's different.
2: <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we, we won't go down the rabbit hole all the way in this. We could go in a rabbit hole. Is there hole. a rabbit hole there? There, there, is, there a is a rabbit hole. hole. Oh, okay. There I is okay. a rabbit hole. Yeah.
1: Um, I wasn't I, prompted what, to ask that question. No, no. no. Question so, you know, okay. one,
2: one <laughs> of the companies I founded is is about giving you the ability to control your dreams. Oh, is Okay. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you step right into in. That yeah. yeah that's okay. Problem. But I would say... I it's a big open question about your dreams and what what meaning do they have and where do they come from? And and I I don't know. It's a big open question. Um, But I will say I definitely felt tremendous insight on like my purpose and why I'm here. And that was incredibly comforting to me. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's also, I mean, I don't know. There's there's people that I read. Um, Joe Dispenza being one of them. He's got um, a few books. Um, one of them is uh, called Becoming Supernatural. Um, is how the it's, uh, I think the, get the title right. How the how the common do the uncommon, and it's largely based in meditation and it's the whole idea of like these these this quantum theory of there are all these various possibilities out in the in the world right and that you can be a co-creator of these possibilities right Th- using meditation as a vehicle but putting together the 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 mind of what you can visualize and create with the heart meaning the emotion that draws those things to you um, to make them reality, so um, I love that. There's, there's, there's a bit of that out there too.
1: Interesting.
2: I like the look of intrigue on your face.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh... Here's why I ask. This is last night. I, I had a slice of carrot cake that I shouldn't have had. <laughs>
2: Every great story begins with that very <laughs> sentence.
1: <laughs> it had dairy in it. it Took it. some lactate. Some berry, huh? But I, I was staring at this carrot cake and I had a slice of carrot cake. I, I, so I knew I shouldn't have had it, and I did it, <laughs> all right? Inevitably, I have bad dreams when I eat before I go to bed. Mm. In- inevitably. But I, I thought I was going to stay awake <laughs> longer, <laughs> but I didn't. It put me to sleep. And I was having a bad dream, but it's almost like I was observing it. Mm. And I something said you need to wake up before. Yep. And I woke up.
2: Yep. That is a common thing in dreams. It's it's a disassociation where you can watch Got yourself it. in the third person. And Got that, it. That is a function of some dreams. Got it. Yeah.
1: So we won't go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Obviously, I stepped into something <laughs> that I don't want to step too far into. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating, you know. So maybe we should take this offline. It is it's more, actually <laughs> <more> fascinating. <laughs> uh, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. But so
0: I, I think the whole point of all of this, in terms of how we think about it, is that the mind is super powerful, right? And that we can't underestimate. We can't it. underestimate. Yeah. And then also, what what we have at our disposal today are these experiences, right? That really allow us to have more of an understanding about who we are, yeah. right? And 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 can help us with you know these levels of clarity, whether it be mental clarity or whether it be just what you want to. You know, to to evolve into as a human being, finding purpose, all those things. So I think it's just a it's an evolving place that I think we'll all see and hear more about. And so, I,
2: I'll yeah, just ahead. say just to follow up on that, yeah. and one of the things I was the last time I had lunch with Charles, I was talking to him about these two books that have been transformative for me in my life that I just finished in the last you know month. Um, first is called The Journey of the Heroic Parent. And then the second is called The Audacity to Be You. Mm. And they're written by the same guy, this guy, Brad Reedy, uh, R-E-E-D-Y, I think. And one of the the sort of fundamental themes that to me is just to follow up on what you just said, that is now my mantra to live by, is that the best thing that you can do for any other human being is to truly know and love yourself. Mm.
0: I wrote that down when he
2: told me. And and that that's... Easier said than done. It is easier said than done. Cause first of all, knowing yourself's its own challenge. Cause you really have to start to zoom out a little bit, right? Like, okay, so wait a second. What was it about my father? So what was it about my mom? And what, you know, because so the reality is he has this line that I love, which is that, you know, he refers to, he refers to each of our childhoods as the soup that you were cooked in. Right. We were all cooked in our own soup, right? And, and, and each one of our soups had different ingredients, right? And they all, of course, they had an impact, right? Who we are today has so much to do with who our parents were, who our siblings were, how we were raised. So just trying to peel all those layers of the onion to figure out, well, wait, you know, like, for example, gee, why did I marry a super powerful, strong woman? Well, gosh, I was, you know, grew up in a house with three of them, you know?
1: So, so let me ask you this though, right? Because there there could have been something about that experience that said, "I ain't doing. I'm not marrying a superpower."
2: Okay, well, but right? but then, but then that's also because of how you were it raised. Is, right? Yes, yes it is. they're the same.
1: So there's some predisposition in there, right? Right, but I
2: mean, in other words, but it words, depends on how it, I think. Where you're headed with
0: what, which I totally agree with, is is what did that experience do? To shape you one way or the other. One way or the other. Exactly. One way or the other. Yeah, because I could have said,
2: I'm never marrying anybody like this. But then my childhood still impacted my life. It impacted you. Right? One way or the other. Right? Because I think we're all either a reaction to our parents or we mimic them in some ways. And it's probably a combination. And so, but but we are who we are because of so much because of of how we were raised. So first, you got to get to know yourself, which is no small task. And then the harder part's loving yourself because the the subtitle to his audacity to be you, the the audacity to be you, the subtitle is learning to love your no good rotten self. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because then you discover you got all these jagged broken pieces inside of you and you actually have to make your peace with them and be able to unconditionally love yourself, including those broken pieces. And once you do that, What's amazing is it turns around. Then you start feeling all this compassion for everybody else because uh, you could so show true. yourself compassion. Yeah,
0: and I think what's was underestimated about that is how hard that is. The difficulty in those two things together, right? To know yourself because that's a that's that's a biggie in itself. Right, to just figure out look. 50 plus years in life, you're trying to figure out who you are. I mean, it's still, it's a thing, right? We're all trying to figure that out. But then also to be able to really love yourself, unconditionally love yourself for all the choices we make, right? Because, you know, we, we we tell ourselves all these stories about how bad we are because of the things that we do, right? Not how good we are because of what we try to do to be better.
1: I, I, I think you see both sides of it, right? Some people just don't have a an objective lens when it comes to themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some, like you said, we're really hard on ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And the other thing is, what does it mean to love yourself? Like, what is love? Like, what what is that? Is that simply wanting what's best for someone? Is that accepting the good with the bad? What is it? We aren't taught <laughs> a really what good love problem. is, Right. A really, kind of point. self-discover what, what it is. I gotta tell
0: you, that's probably foundational, right? And I think you, you, you
2: yeah.
0: look, you hit that square on the head. It's a
2: great, it's a really, it's it, such a good question. It's such
0: a good question because I think we all get, I think throughout life, in a lot of ways, we get confused about what love is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um,
1: like, I can't live without you isn't really love. Right? No, no, I agree, uh, that's codependence. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's a little scary, but, yeah.
0: but, but, is Compassion and understanding and being empathetic. Is that love, right? Right. I think in a lot of ways it is, right? Just trying to figure out, but but how do you marry that with all the other elements when you're like, oh, yeah. you know, like the the intimate intimate love or the love where I, I care deeply for you and what happens to you in life? You know, like there's so many, so many, I guess, um elements to love in terms of where we can find it. But also, where is he loose if we don't know what it it really is?
2: Well, and I think I'll I'll, I know we're running out of time. I'll I'll give you one last context for this story. That's something I've been thinking about quite a bit. So my father grew up in the Great Depression and he struggled financially with his life. And part of why he created his own law firm and encouraged his sons to work for him is because he didn't want his kids to struggle the way he struggled. Sounds like a loving act of a father towards his children. But what's interesting is now, as I look back, I think his heart was in the right place. He tried to do the right thing, but in some ways he did a lot of us a disservice because we now weren't sure we could survive on our own and we weren't sure we could work for somebody else and okay, we could work for dad, but he loves us. What could we work for people who don't unconditionally love us? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so then we started to maybe doubt ourselves And if there was no firm to begin with, we never would have had some of that doubt because we would have had no choice but to go work for other people and figure it out ourselves. And so I think to myself, he meant well. But was that the right thing to do? Was that the compassionate thing to do? Mm. Was that the loving thing to do? I don't know. I could see an argument really on both sides.
1: We'll have to continue this conversation. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's, it's fascinating. Um, um, you know, I think all well, of us are intrigued just for different reasons, right? <laughs> I mean, it's and I, you know, I don't have kids, and I'm not married. Uh, I've been married, but I'm not married, so all of this may mean something a little different to me, right? I'm not thinking about the children. Am I thinking about?
2: But of course, you were a child.
1: I was for a really long time. <laughs> 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 it.
2: <kidding>. Stop it. <laughs>
1: Well, man, man, you know this. I didn't know. I thought we were probably going to talk more about the professional world of Craig. Man, this is really fascinating, and maybe for me because of that character. Well, I got to tell you,
0: <laughs> I got to <laughs> tell you, like, like we have like we've barely like touched. Yeah, we got we we, gotta we sit we've barely scratched right? the surface because of what, how much I know about Craig, yeah. and and I we haven't even talked a lot about you know what he's doing now with the with the, the venture fund and like how interesting and and um. Gosh, I mean, there's so much about that that is exciting. Right. Um, And then just, you know, he's got a great family. Um, There's just so much to this conversation. But also, I think there's so much to, you know, there's so many interests that you have personally that, you know, we don't talk about. And so. Well, um, I'm fascinated
1: by you, man, because anybody who's that introspective and does the work to understand um. Not just the impact you have on yourself with the people around you, man. I I respect that a lot. What do you talk about Burning Man?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I could do a whole show on Burning Man. Look, I don't usually get to compete with Carrot Cake. So the fact that I'm on that same level right now is really exciting to me. I've never – I don't If know that I ever thought I could come out on top with Carrot Cake (laughs) So that's
1: exciting. Well, carrot cake brought me brought me to lactate. And I thought <laughs> I would never take lactate, man. But I, <laughs> so, but I no other vices as far as my my dairy allergy, but I, I gotta have some carrot cake every now and again, man. Yeah. Can't blame you.
2: Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Pleasure. Happy to continue the conversation anytime.
1: We will do it at dinner.
2: Uh, that's uh, I'll take you up on that one. For sure.
0: And thank you for joining us on the conscious vibe.
1: Thank you for joining us.
0: And check us out on TCVpodcast.com.